0: Hey there everybody, Bob Beatty Bar here, and welcome to episode 2 of- Let's start out each episode with some podcast news. So after episode one, we had about 100 listeners, and that makes me super happy. So hopefully we can uh, take that up a notch for this next episode. If not, I'm happy with 100 people checking us out every week. Uh, I'm super sorry about the technical issues that we had with the first file that I uploaded. Uh, I really was going too fast and didn't really think through things. I think I have a process now where I can get everything uh, in sync. And hopefully sounding as good as possible. Uh, and finally, remember, if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, uh, just reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at BootNumLock, or you can reach me at email at B-O-B at B-A-T-Y dash dot com. So today the podcast is brought to you by Social Imposter, reputation management for social networking profiles. I can hear you already saying to yourself, but Bob, what the heck is Social Imposter? What does all that mean? Well, let me tell you. Social Imposter is a customized service utilizing proprietary technology that finds and mitigates removal of fake social network pages on behalf of high profile brands, actors, athletes, models, musicians, politicians, military officers, business people, members of the clergy and their management teams. So basically, if you have social media presence and you're worried about people imitating your social media and possibly putting misleading or even malicious information out there on your behalf. And it's not on your behalf. It's actually fake. Uh, social Imposter is the place to go to get those profiles removed. So a huge thanks to uh, Social Imposter for being a podcast sponsor again today. So let's meet our first guest today. My guest is Kevin Long. Uh, I've known Kevin since we were both the new kids in a new town as sophomores in high school. That goes back to 1986. So let me tell you a little bit more about Kevin. He graduated from Purdue University in 1992 and worked on Capitol Hill as a press secretary for Congressman Dan Burton. He has served as a senior professional staff member for the House Government Reform Committee and was responsible for counter-narcotics policy oversight for the federal government. Kevin also started a strategic communications firm that was a subcontractor for the Department of Defense. After working for the government, Kevin founded a company called MVP Sports Media Training. He trained over a 1,000 athletes and coaches in schools throughout the country and has also trained for the IndyCar Circuit, NASCAR, Big Ten Network, Major League Soccer, the NFL, and the United States Olympic synchronized swimming team. Kevin's also a pioneer entrepreneur in the social networking field. He was the first to create social media monitoring software to monitor specific accounts. And he's also the founder of Social Imposter, a sponsor of this podcast. Kevin has appeared on Sirius XM Radio, The Sporting News, ESPN Radio, Fox News, NPR, The Huffington Post, and many, many more. And he's been kind enough to be on my podcast today. Why? Because he's my friend. So let's meet my friend, Kevin Long. All right, so I'm here with Kevin Long. Known him for quite a while, as you saw in the intro, 1986. So typically in the first episode, Kevin and I said, so what have you been doing since last we've been together? But that would be like a really long story. Uh, Through looking at your bio, had some great notes, but um, your bio is kind of written for other people. So, why don't you, in your own words, kind of tell us a little bit about who you are?
1: Well, first of all, I'm a dad, and I've got a amazing daughter who's a great softball player. And I spend my happy place nowadays is at a softball field on the weekends. She plays on a very competitive travel team. It's a, a just an outstanding student and a great kid. So, I've I, my priority number one is her, and then uh, I also am CEO of my own business, as you know, Social Imposter, where we have a technology that identifies fake social media accounts for high-profile people, and then we they hire us and we get them taken down. Um, prior to that, I. I And I still do some media trainings for college and professional and Olympic athletes, uh, where we go in and we set up a camera and we teach them how to talk to the media on on uh, camera. Do a mock interview, do a press, make fake press conference, get them comfortable behind the mic, give them some suggestions on how they could improve their interview skills. And prior to that, as you know, I created the very first software that did monitoring of social media for specific users. And we built it initially to monitor student athlete uh, social media pages. And then after we did that for a year or two, we added in the ability for parents to monitor their kids pages for uh, inappropriate content or dangerous content to be able to uh, make them safe and, and keep that going. Before that, I was a contractor in the Pentagon where I did uh, media training in Afghanistan and Colombia. And I ran a team in Afghanistan for about 18 months. And prior to that, I was part of a team in Colombia for about uh, 18 months. And uh, prior to that, I worked on Capitol Hill. Um, Lastly, as a senior professional staff member uh, for a government reform committee and my my portfolio was counter narcotics policy and oversight where i helped uh, identify the needs of our war on drugs partners from uh, everything from uh, bullets to guns to helicopters to airplanes and then came back and and helped get those items funded through the appropriations process Prior to that, I was press secretary on Capitol Hill, where I helped uh, the congressman get his message out to the media and his constituents. For that, I was a college student, and I also interned in Vice President Quayle's office and Senator Dan Coates' office. So there you have it, all the <laughs> way back to when we were in just getting out of high school.
0: So there's probably no way that we will cover all that today. Uh, that would take several hours, and it's obvious that that's taken a lifetime to build that all up. There's some awesome questions, I think, that I have throughout that uh, that sorted history, Um Very awesome to hear you say dad first. Uh, That actually being your friend makes me very happy to hear that. Uh, I know Lindsay's really awesome. And I know you do spend a lot of time with the softball gig these days. So that's really cool. So I think a fun. Well, I don't know, fun, but interesting would be to figure out or have a conversation about the transition from, oh, House Government Reform Committee on Counter Narcotics to media training like how does that all how does that jump from that to that
1: (laughs) (laughs) well it was interesting when i I left capitol hill kind of unceremoniously Uh, when republicans took over congress we made a rule or the republican conference made a rule that committee chairman could only serve for six years or three terms as the chairman of a particular committee and prior to my boss serving three terms, everybody had graciously given the staffers of the former committee six months severance, gave them time to find another job and let them move on if they didn't want to keep them. The uh, congressman who came on after my boss was chairman came in on Thursday afternoon and told everybody they needed to be out by noon on Friday. So I was left unemployed for about six months after that. And you know, finally found a job as a contractor working in the Pentagon in the counter narcotics office, the, the special operations, low intensity conflict counter narcotics office. And part of that, they, uh, they had us go and we had a team in Colombia in the Colombian ministry of defense that was doing media training for, uh, the minister of defense, some generals, helping them run a press office, uh, within the ministry of defense and that sort of thing. So, I moved from Capitol Hill to the contractor role, where we did it for the government, and it was on a trip to Bogota, where one night I was out to dinner, um, walked down the street from my hotel, went to a bar, had some dinner, and on, they had sports center on the TV. And as you know, I'd always played sports and, and been an athlete myself a few pizzas ago and the, uh, on sports center, there was a interview with Kevin Garnett at the time was playing for the Minnesota Timberwolves. And he started spouting off about how he had all these guns at home and how he was ready to go to war and that he was going to do battle. And they were criticizing him for his choice of words. There had just been a school shooting the week before. And so they were being overly critical of him. And I, I just kind of thought, huh, there's a lot of athletes and college athletes who could use this type of training that I'm giving to these uh, uh, soldiers and the administrators within the Ministry of Defense in Colombia. There's a lot of athletes that could use that sort of training back at home, apparently. So on the way back home i kind of drew up my business plan on the flight and when i got back home i started mvp sports media training and that's kind of how i went from one to the other
0: so when it came to like all right so we're going to jump all over the place here but so starting mvp drew up your business plan on the way home i mean have you done any of these business things where you've had outside funding or were these all like just you personally taking them from ground zero to wherever they went
1: I have never taken a dollar from anybody else. Uh, I've always done it myself. Some people would say foolishly. Um, everything has been uh, either myself or in the case of due diligence, I had partners that were also involved, one of them actively, one of them not so much so, um, in helping develop the product, which was the social media monitoring software. But everything else, I've just kind of had the idea. I have run with it. And I've made mistakes and I've learned from those mistakes and applied those lessons learned into um, future operations and future business endeavors to get to the point where I am now.
0: All right. So back to MVP. So you drop that flight or you drop that business plan on the flight home. How like how do you even think that you're going to get your first like training gig? <sighs>
1: Well, I knew that I knew a couple of people in the sports business. Uh, I knew a basketball coach in in, uh, college who went to high school with us, Matt Painter, who's now the head coach at Purdue. And I knew that I knew the lobbyists for Major League Baseball. And I thought between the two of them, I could at least get a couple of opportunities to do this.
0: Right. But so you weren't going to try to media train Kevin Garnett, like client number one. No.
1: No, no. I realize that uh, you're going to have to go through the communication staffs at the um, either the college or the pro team. I did a lot of uh, postcard mailings. I did a lot of cold calling. I did a lot of knocking on doors of calling up anybody who knew anybody who knew anybody like a six degrees of separation of Kevin Bacon type of thing. and eventually i the first meeting we had was actually uh, off of a postcard that i sent that got to greg ayallo who at the time was a vice president of communications for the nfl the very first meeting i did was on 5th avenue in new york in the nfl's corporate offices
0: so wait so that was your first mvp like pitch
1: yep first for one for the nfl for the NFL and we went in and we made the pitch and, and, uh, at the time I had a partner initially on MVP, um, who was a guy that had worked with me down in Columbia. And, um, we went, we made the pitch there. We also sent out, uh, uh postcards to all the pro teams. And we had a few calls back and the ones that would see us, we went and saw them. We went and saw the Chicago white Sox in Chicago. Um, We went and saw Greg Aiello in New York with the NFL, um, and what came out of those was nothing. Hmm. You know, we had had a couple of contacts. Greg Aiello had stayed in contact with me for a long time after that. And at one point he brought me back then to go to the NFL winter meetings or maybe it was off season meetings. And uh, we went to the, the meetings or I went to the meetings, made the presentation there. They made it a requirement for each team to do media training before the season started with the intent of them, you know, his intent was for me to be the guy that they hired to do it. I couldn't convince him to get the NFL to hire me to do all the teams. So he said he was leaving it up to the individual teams to do it. And when push came to shove, they gave the mandate that they had to do media training. Well, the teams pushed back and they decided that uh, I had three teams contact me after that to do media training. And but the, the teams pushed back and they decided that. NFL decided that they would allow them to do their media training in-house, so they didn't have to hire a contractor to do it. So after that, the the sports teams are notoriously cheap unless they're doing something for themselves, um, getting something for themselves, uh, any sort of service they're notoriously cheap on. But none of them hired me to do it or MVP to do anything, and you know it was a continual thing. I sent out I must have sent out thirty postcards over the years. Some of them pretty controversial, some of them not so much so, that drew attention to what I was doing, mistakes that other athletes had made, showing successes that I had when I would go and do a school that ended up doing well. For instance, I did the media training for the George Mason basketball team in January, and in March, they ended up in the Final Four, and who would have ever thought that would happen?
0: And they probably got a little media exposure on their way to the Final Four, because they were that year's Cinderella team, right? Right.
1: They were the very first uh, mid-major team to make it to the Final Four in the modern era. Yes, they got a ton of media training, or a ton of media attention, I mean. So
0: talk about some of these postcards that you sent, because I do remember seeing some of these. And you mentioned that, you know, some controversial ones. What was probably the one that it might not have gotten you the right attention, but it got you the most attention? (laughs)
1: I, I, I'm even hesitant to bring it up in the in the context that we're going through this week in particular with the uh, Harvey Weinstein issue this week. Um, but I, I used the quote from Bobby Knight that he used on Nightline about if rape is inevitable, you might as well sit back and enjoy it. And I put Bobby Knight, IU basketball coach underneath it. I put it in quotes and it was done very, you know, it was designed very well by a professional graphic artist And I sent it out. How many did you, how many
0: did you send?
1: Several thousand. I got phone calls with people screaming at me, telling me to take, take them off their mailing list. I got rain, the rape and incest support network, people calling me, complaining about it. I mean, I did not foresee the reaction that I had from it. I knew it would get attention, but I thought people would look people were thinking that I said this or that I, this was my, um, belief, not, they weren't looking at it as being a quote from Bobby Knight, even though it said that on right, the card, but these were
0: two sided postcards, right? So the disturber was on one side and then the payoff was on the back, right?
1: Correct. So th- Correct. Some of these
0: people probably only saw one side and just went through the roof. <laughs>
1: Yes, that's exactly right. And, uh, you know, so that was the most controversial one.
0: Did and you get any positive feedback from that one? Like people that actually flipped the page and were, got, had the aha moment? Oh, he's going to try to help us keep this kind of crap from happening to us.
1: No, about the only positive <laughs> feedback I got was, man, I can't believe you had the balls to send that out. But, you know, we understand where you're coming from, but not in a million years would we have ever sent that I had some crisis communications companies calling me to tell me I needed to change my business name. I had, uh, you know, I was, I was just blown away. I was not anticipating the negative reaction that it got. And that was still in the early days of MVP. So you
0: hadn't landed a bunch of trainings yet at that point.
1: No, the only trainings I'd done at that point, in fact, were ones that I had given away at a raffle at the uh, sports information director's conference. So it was still, you know, prior, prior to my first paying gig, um, when that happened, who was the first paying gig? My first paying gig was, oh boy, who was it? I don't even remember now. It's been so long ago. Uh, I, I, well, you know, I don't, I don't remember. Honestly, that's sad to say. Well, that's good,
0: though, because, I mean, you did train a bunch of people. So yeah. and you've always had lots of irons in the fire. So I'm sure there was something else you were firing up at the same time that you probably landed that first gig.
1: So yeah, I'll probably remember it at some point and I'll just blurt it out during our conversation. But I, right now, I don't remember who it was. No worries. No worries at all. So, OK, so
0: training athletes. So, talk to me a little bit about like what we're going back to when you were training people in Bogota and stuff like that in Colombia. Like what kind of training, what kind of media training did you give government officials?
1: Well, a lot of these people that are in the ministries in in Colombia and in Afghanistan where we were working were not high profile people in the sense of being on tv before they assumed their positions in in the government they were business people they were campaign workers they were relatives in some cases of the of the person who won the election so they're not used to having a microphone and a camera shoved in their face so what we did was we went in and we had them you know put in a situation where we hired a professional reporter who was not on duty to come in. We had a you know a professional television camera crew and the reporter would go through and we'd write up a bunch of questions about scenarios of things that had happened recently in the country uh, about their their thoughts on those things. And then we would just sit down and we would basically do a full scale interview with a mock interview um, Sometimes we do it in, a, in various settings, whether you're standing up, whether you're sitting down, whether it's in a press conference type setting, but we would basically do the media version of what, uh, in law, they would call a murder board, where they practice the trial before, ahead of time to see what the reaction of the people would be. And in this case, we were practicing the reaction of what the person would have when they were asked a question by a reporter, and we were trying to teach them how to enunciate their words clearly, how how to look, where to look, how to stand, where to put their hands. Body language is critical in all of that. And so we would teach them about body language. We would teach them about, you know, bridging to points that they wanted to emphasize, understanding that the interview, that they control the interview as opposed to the interviewer, as as opposed to the reporter, and allowing them to come off being uh, the one that, that dominated the interview setting. So, That's kind of how we did it.
0: So what were the what were the most common like gaffes and pitfalls that you saw at the at that government level? You know, you're training these fringe contacted government people, you know, friends, family, smaller, lesser cabinet members or whatever. What's you know, what were some of the pitfalls that they had?
1: The, the major one by far and away, and it's a problem that everybody has, is they had diarrhea of the mouth. They just wanted to talk. They wanted to prove how much that they knew. And so they had to tell everybody everything as opposed to keeping their responses into 30 second or less sound bites. Because if you've ever watched the news, unless it's a 60 minutes piece or a you know a news magazine piece, they give you a snippet, 10, 20, 30 seconds. And that's it. So you need to tailor your answers around what you want those sound bites to be. But these people, you know, they're in a position where they want people to think that they're smart, to think that they belong where they're at or they deserve their position. So they want to give you the you know, the Gettysburg address of answers whenever you ask them a question. So teaching them to be a little more clear and concise about their answers was probably the most common mistake that we saw with folks in those government positions.
0: So where would you say like in the scope of your career or basically in the scope of communications? So I felt like watching your career from, you know, the sidelines and being a friend, I felt like you were really involved early on with this whole, I will call it a newer era of like managing the messaging. Like, do you feel like you were, you know, you were part of that movement or has, has it been going on for much longer than I think it has?
1: I I think that it uh, has become a lot more prominent. I think it's always managing the message has always been there, but it's become a lot more prominent because the availability of uh, uh, transmitting television and radio broadcasts uh, to a broader audience has become more commonplace. The advent of social media, which allows dissemination immediately to the entire world the internet came along so it became uh, while i think managing the message was always there it became eminently more important once those things all kind of collided and became you know the soundbite you know the instant soundbite which could either kill you or you know potentially make you a saint, depending on what you said, um, those kind of things were all kind of pushed in together. And, uh, you know, it was a confluence of various factors that made it more important and more relevant than maybe it was prior to that.
0: So if you take off your message manager hat for a second and then put on your message consumer hat, do you feel like that, you know, the the managing of the messaging is hurt us or helped us as consumers of the message?
1: (laughs) That's a good question. um, Because... As, a, as someone who does media training and has done media training, I can spot somebody who's had a good media trainer a mile away now, and it makes me less inclined to listen to what they have to say than someone who doesn't, because I feel like I'm getting the straight scoop from someone who ha- doesn't have their message handled for them or managed, and uh, so as a, just purely as a consumer, I, I like it better for those that, that don't manage their message, but... As someone who's trying to maintain an image for someone, maintain that message, I understand and, you know, dread the day that I have someone who just fires off tweets at two in the morning that I'm supposed to be responsible for. Who would do that? Who who does that? I have (laughs) no idea, but I am a big supporter of his. But uh, that, uh, you know, but I wouldn't want to be in his communication shop. That's for sure.
0: Not at all. Not at all. So, all right. So you moved from working with these government people and we've, you kind of touched upon this already. So you started working with college kids and athletes, probably at the, the spark of all the craziness with social media. So like you started training these kids to be in front of the camera and I'm going to just go ahead and put these words in your mouth. Cause I think I watched that one from the sidelines enough too. It seemed like the camera being in front of the media became such a small part of it because all this stuff was happening behind the scenes with social media. I mean, is that
1: accurate? Absolutely. Um, Although I think that the lessons that you learn in traditional media training are, absolutely essential now for social media as well Um, you know the initial uh, social media networks weren't heavily video centric they were a lot more content centric so it was uh, you know a little bit different type of message management at that point but once the uh, the, kind of the 2.0 era of social media came about and and video became a, a very prominent feature on on those networks, the same principles apply on managing your message. However, I don't think that the current generation of, of college, high school, and maybe even the just prior generation of college athletes Understands at all what they're doing and the content they're creating and putting out there because they put everything out there and they don't think twice about it, not realizing that it's going to be there forever on a Google search. And you know, maybe society's uh, views of that are going to change at some point to where nobody cares because everybody's done something stupid, but right now that's still something that can come back to haunt them in five years or six years or eight years when they go to try and get a job. If somebody just does a simple Google search of them and sees those posts that they made on social media, that if they're controversial will still be out there because people will have made them relevant because they keep looking at them. Um, you know, there's, all you have to do is Google stupid athlete comments and you'll find, uh, you know, 2,000 pages of Google results. And those things are there for a reason because people have, you know, they just don't know what they're doing. And, you know, part of the, the reason why I think the first generation didn't do a whole lot, um, or didn't, didn't really check themselves on social media. One was because they didn't understand the power of it. And two, right at that time when that was becoming popular in college and ultimately into the professional level, was a time when the country went into a recession. And during that recession, the money that goes to the communication shops at college athletic departments dried up. And the first thing to go is outside services like media training. So there's a whole probably six years, eight years of kids who went through college athletic departments that may have gotten one, but most of them got no media training.
0: Right, mostly so, went unchecked.
1: Yes, they kind of flew by the seas of their pants if they did something stupid maybe the university would would suspend them for a game but nobody really did a whole lot to educate them on the perils of posting things that were going to be around forever and that was in due in large part to the financial crunch that the athletic departments were facing at the time and uh you know so i mean it impacted my what i was doing it impact you know enough that i went out and started building the other software to monitor what was going on in the social media space. Um, So...
0: Oh, so that was the impetus. So media training was kind of drying up because of the financial crisis. They didn't have budgets for it. But you immediately saw a need to have some kind yeah. of, I mean, training would have been ideal, but monitoring is kind of like the, you know, if you can't pay to train, you might as well pay to monitor and see if you can get at least a tiny bit in front of something when it happens.
1: Exactly. And at that time, you know, the, the social media was still on in its infancy when we developed uh you diligence and that was, um, a result of me going, doing media trainings and those were starting to dry up, but I was still seeing in the newspaper, local newspapers or school newspapers, stories about things that kids had posted on photo bucket or at the time MySpace was just starting. So that's how early I started seeing the issue. And I, I asked the, Athletic departments that I worked with, if I develop some computer program to monitor what these kids are saying, to give you an early warning radar as to what might be coming down the pike, so maybe you can get them to take it down before it becomes a problem, then you know would that be something you'd be interested in? Of course, everybody says yes, we'd love that. And so I go out and spend a bunch of money and find a... Wait, wait,
0: let's <laughs> let's stop right there. Okay. So you walked in and you were pitching, you were pitching to a bunch of different schools. Hey, what if, what, you probably said, what if I built a software that did X? Yes. Can you just share with everyone how much computer knowledge you actually have?
1: <laughs> well, you're probably laughing heartily inside because at this point, I- you know, I have a hard time using email still at this point. And if anything ever happened to my computer, the first person I called was either you or my wife's friend, Rob. And you guys would have to spend hours on the phone with me trying to walk me through why I had a blue screen on my on my laptop. Or, and
0: and you know, now and now tell all my friends or all of our friends uh, how many tech companies you've started. I have started. Two tech companies yeah.
1: <laughs> since then. And
0: both been successful.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, different <laughs> levels of success, I guess. Yes. And both software-based. Yes. Both of them entirely <laughs> so, software. That was it. Yes.
0: So that's for all the kids out there who think that, you know, if you know everything about computers, you're going to be hot and make this new thing. It's actually possible that you don't know a thing about computers. And if you have the idea, it could come come to reality. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I I just wanted to get that in there because I knew you were going to talk about the first (laughs) software project and I just is in my notes to not giggle too loud. Oh,
1: you should. I mean, it's it's hysterical and it's almost like the most improbable. I'm the most improbable person to run a tech company because, you know, I still have trouble with email. I've started to get a little better, you know, figuring things out on my own, as you like to used to say, you know, have you Googled (laughs) it yet when I called you? But, uh, you know, it's I've gotten a little more self-sufficient and actually to the point where some people actually hire me to do tech stuff for them now which is just absolutely mind-blowing to me and probably more so to you
0: yeah i remember the first time you told me that <laughs> i was like get out of here
1: <laughs> <laughs> so anyway back to the the you diligence pitching story yes i said hey you know if i build this is this something you'd be interested in buying and of course in concept anybody will buy anything if you present it in the right way in the right format in the forum so i went out spent a bunch of money developed the software with a partner um brought these guys in because i couldn't afford to to completely finance it self-fund it myself and we built the prototype and put it out there and it worked at that time, it worked on uh, MySpace only because that was the only network that was out there at the time. And we figured out a way to hack MySpace. God, we are really dating ourselves here. Yeah, this was the first MySpace, not the Justin Timberlake MySpace. This was back in the beginning with Chris DeWitt and and uh, Mauricio, who built that. And the, 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 your friend Tom, who was always on every everybody's first friend on MySpace. <laughs> But, um, those, uh, those guys, we built this and then Facebooks came along and started a few colleges and then a few more and a few more. And finally we started getting requests from athletic departments to monitor Facebook too. So we figured out a way to hack Facebook and do it. And then, uh, at this time, Facebook still only had a hundred, people are so working for it. And we started to have trouble doing what we were doing to monitor the Facebook pages. So I went on LinkedIn and I found a connection that had a connection that knew somebody at Facebook and I convinced them to set up a meeting for me in Palo Alto. And I flew out and went to Facebook when they were still at the building just off of Stanford's campus had less than a hundred people working there at the time. And I went in and I can remember, I I met with this, the guy who at the time was a a deputy general counsel and he, you know, continued to rise through the ranks. He just quit about six months ago. or retired, I should say. Um, (laughs) But uh, I met with Sam and I met with uh, one of their PR people, and they wanted to know what it was that we were doing. And so I went in and I said, look, here's the deal. We want to monitor these accounts with their knowledge so that they uh, are able to prevent, so that their schools and the athletes are able to prevent potential problems for them going forward in the future and to keep the schools from having to deal with, you know, Uh, distractions during the season or in the off season or whenever. And they just kind of looked at me like they couldn't believe that somebody was doing this. But the one thing he said, Sam said at the time was, you know, you're the first outside person to come in and say you want to work with us instead of trying to beat us at the game. Nice. And he said, why would you do that? And I said, well, you know, in my previous experience, it's always better to work with someone than to try and beat them. You're going to have more resources than I do. And why wouldn't I rather work with you than try to work around you? So that began a friendship between Sam and I that spanned two different companies and, you know, close to 10 years plus and still going. And, uh, So at that point, he linked us up with linked my software engineers up with the Facebook engineers and we built you know, they helped us build uh, and gain access to their system in order to monitor the profiles.
0: So tell everybody, I mean, if you can, how does you diligence? what does you diligence actually do?
1: So what you diligence does now, and it's very similar to what it did in the beginning, we added a few more features over the years and more networks. But basically, with the user's permission, it allows you to go in and say, um, scrape, uh, for lack of a better term, or crawl the user's page and search for keywords. Pull all the photos, all the videos, uh, but scrape for keywords. And once a keyword that we have in our list of potentially negative words is found, it would pull those conversations back, place them in a dashboard, put them in an email that got sent both to the athlete and to the coach, or to the parent and the uh, and the child. Although most of the time the parents didn't have them sent to the child, but you know it would go that way and then the uh the parents would always be able to access or the coaches would always be able to access the videos and the pictures and the the captions underneath if there was a hit on them they would get an alert and then the athletes would know once a day they'd get an email with all their alerts on it and the coaches would get one at the end of the day with all their alerts on it and they would have the opportunity to try and and uh, you know get the content delineated or, or removed before it became a problem. And, you know, what we found was that, you know, we had such a broad base of keywords that we were using that it became problematic and was like a fire hose instead of a garden hose of information.
0: What was it? What, what, what did you guys use for the initial seeding for the uh, keyword dictionary? Uh,
1: I don't remember. All I remember was we had. I, 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 I thought you guys linked
0: into Urban Dictionary or something for that.
1: No, we didn't do that. I now remember what we did. I went to actually at the at the time I, I, I in college, I was in a fraternity, as were you. <laughs> yes. And I was also the chapter advisor for my old college fraternity on campus here in town. And I went in there and I frequently did this for you. Years afterwards, I would have the guys write down all of the current slang and curse words and any of the bad words that they would could think of, and then we use that as our list of keywords that we searched for. Um, so I used that resource as a as what I felt was a pretty conventional college group that might use bad words or, you know, could think of any of the bad words. And and we identified those and we put them in a list. In the end, we had a list of over twenty five hundred words that we were searching for. Some of them had innocuous meanings depending on the context, which was part of the problem of it being a fire hose. And, you know, we didn't have context sentiment or automated intelligence that would cause it to learn, um, you know, when something was okay and when it wasn't okay.
0: Oh, no, this was way before AI ever hit the scenes.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, we were getting not, not like five alerts a day or whatever. we were getting thousands of alerts a day. So it went from, you know, having us do it because it was easy to creating like three full-time jobs for athletic departments to try and keep up with the alerts that came in. And, you know, we worked ourselves out of a job basically over the years, the numbers of people that You know, that bought us initially, we went from like six to 24 to 36 clients. And then, usually after a year or two, they would drop because they just didn't have, they couldn't process all the information that was coming in. And we couldn't figure out a way to cover everything, but not give them. More than what they needed, and uh, without having to charge a lot more for on our side to go through and eliminate the ones that were false positives, so uh, you know it kind of died a slow death, and in the end, you know it lasted almost. Eight or nine years that we had the company, and we closed it down in in uh, June of 2015 was our last. We had still had three clients at that point, and we'd had them for a few years. And they actually none of the three had used it for like three or four years, but they kept paying. And us.
0: that was the letter U diligence, right?
1: So yes, the letter U diligence. When yes. did
0: you guys transition? When did you transition from the letter U to the more consumer friendly YOU diligence?
1: Um, that was a couple of years in, um, to doing it after we had gotten, uh, in bed or not in bed, but we'd got, we'd gotten, uh, you know, connections with Facebook and we could see that it would have a broader application in the parents, um, atmosphere as well, or we felt like it would. So we, once again, we kind of jumped before we thought through the process, my partners and I did, you know, this was a no brainer. This was going to make us gazillionaires. And we kind of leapt and built the, built out a tangential, um, user interface that still use the same backend to um, make it operate. And we, you know, we had to change some things around because it wasn't, you know, exactly the same it had, had some changes to it so that it could be used for one or two or three people, as opposed to 15 people on a basketball team or 85 on a football team. And, you know, the way it was, was parsed out on the user interface. And for a while, you know, we tried to market it direct to consumer. We didn't have any success, We had a couple of newspaper articles that published about it we thought, Oh, this is going to be great. Oprah called. I missed the phone call and then tried to call back for months. And finally on a Friday afternoon, like six o'clock, I got through to the person and she was like, yeah, why did I call you? And I, I told her and she's like, Oh yeah, we're not on that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, the window has closed. Yes. So we had a chance that was back when Oprah still had a TV show. Again, we're dating ourselves, (laughs) but, um, in Chicago, no less. But um, you know, we we did that for a while. We then we decided that you know we couldn't afford to continue to try and direct market it because nobody was buying it. At this point, also, and it's, this was part of the problem with the with the U letter U diligence version as well. The, the networks kept making changes to what they would allow us to access and how we had to access it. And they wouldn't tell you before they'd make the changes. It would just all of a sudden everything would stop working. So it would take, you know, in some cases weeks to reverse engineer the changes that the networks were making at the time in, in order to allow us to continue to do what we were doing. And they weren't being helpful at identifying what those changes were. Um, at some point they eventually, and I don't remember when this was, they eventually went to a system that included an API, which allowed multiple third party developers to develop apps that would work on their, System, And we had to re you know, basically um, do a rebuild on our uh, on our system to be able to adapt and access the networks via APIs, which created a whole nother set of problems and made it even harder for the end user to use it. And you know, it didn't make it easy. Um, I'm so proud of all the tech terms you've learned over
0: the past <laughs> few decades.
1: Yes, I didn't use the rebuild correctly. There's another term for it that I can't think of right now. Refactor. Yes, refactor it. Um, rebuild, refactor <laughs> 220, 221, whatever it takes <laughs> but the uh, you know, so we've we've we adapted, we've made the change um, you know, I went out and started seeking people that would want, that felt like they had a business that would be able to market this mass market this uh, uh, YOU diligence to parents telecoms you know, phone companies, uh, internet providers, all these people. I uh, use the U S commercial service to get access to companies in the middle East, to companies in Australia and actually went and visited these places and met with the companies with the help of the U S commercial service, um, to actually set high level meetings with all these people and, you know, walk in the door and you're meeting with, uh, with the head development guy for Telstra in Australia, for instance, you know, it's
0: Weren't you afraid taking these meetings that people were going to be like, oh, no, we're not interested as they're jotting notes down feverishly. And then you walk out the door and then they build it on their own. Um,
1: My partners were afraid of that. I really wasn't afraid of it because I knew all the problems that we had building it. And well, I think if somebody was well financed at the time, if somebody was well financed and they had that as a mission and they could dedicate an engineering team to it they might be able to to similarly create something similar in a period of you know six months to a year they they wouldn't be they would be easier for them just to take what we have give us a rev share on it and right. Just rebrand it as their own. And so we, so
0: is anybody, is anybody doing it yet? Like, has anybody copycatted this at all? Oh
1: yeah. I mean, there's been, oh, I wasn't aware there's been dozens of, of similar type enterprises. The, the nice thing is we got the patent on it. And unfortunately Anybody that knows anything about patents, especially software patents, they're only good as your ability to enforce them. And we didn't have the funds to be able to send lawyers out to try and enforce the patent. So in the end, you know, in the last year or so, we actually sold the patent to somebody who's now going out and trying to enforce it. But um, would that would would that be person be called a patent troll? (laughs) Um, I would not call them that because they're, you know, they're trying to help make me money still. But uh, <laughs> Oh, oh, they're just chasing it down on
0: your behalf. Well,
1: I mean, they bought the patent from us. We get a percentage of whatever they're able to recover. But, um, you know, there's there's thousands of people that have infringed on the patent that we got. And these people are going out. They're going out and they're trying to recover the money from them. So, or something. It's funny them.
0: though. I see zero marketing for social media monitoring. Like I don't see anything. There, of it.
1: I mean, net nanny is one for instance, that does that. There's some other, um, smaller companies that have come in the market and tried, but they basically have had the same issues that we've had. Consumer, you know, parents all think it's a good idea. The PTA thinks it's a good idea. Nobody wants to pay for it. They want it for free. And you really can't provide it for free unless you have some sort of advertising model or uh, something like that that allows you to grab the data and then resell it. Uh, There's not really a way to generate any revenue off of that unless you get users.
0: And I always thought an ISP could bundle it as part of their services and like use it as a value add proposition or something. But
1: well, we, we did partner with a company in Australia that did that or try, said they were going to do that. And, you know, they never did put it into their package offering just never happened. And, uh, you know, it, it became a two or three year uh, effort on their part. And in the end, they just decided that they weren't going to do it that it wasn't going to work and we've you know we've had several white label partners over the years our last one just um, bagged off uh, about a month or two ago and so we actually have you know we've other, we don't have any operations anymore. We shut down due diligence. The only thing that we're doing now is uh, we're working with the, the patent people to try and enforce the patent, and that's it. Uh, we don't have anybody using the software anymore. It's in mothballs. It could be brought back out if somebody wanted to pay to bring it back out and get it up to speed. But at this present time, there's nothing. There's nothing there.
0: I always loved it when you guys were getting ready to roll out a new version or needed to test some new functionality. (laughs) So obviously, besides being friends in real life, Kevin and I are friends on various social media outlets. And whenever they would go into a new testing phase, Kevin's social media feed would become profanity laden and have words about explosive devices and guns and all the slangs associated with them. And I think my
1: dad actually gets the biggest kick out of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, Bob is pretty. Uh, he loves that. He's he, he joins in the fun then, too.
0: Yes, he does. That is so <laughs> funny. All right. So you diligence is kind of on moth- mothballs. Yep. Some somewhere along the line. You got the idea for Social Imposter. When when did that come into the the stream of consciousness?
1: Sometime in about 2011, uh, middle of 2011, I was approached by a security company that actually provided personal security details for Hollywood uh, uh, actors and high profile people out in Hollywood, and one of their clients was having problems with. Um, and I can't name them, but one of their pro- clients was having problems with people creating fake social media accounts and pretending to be them online and was creating issues for the family. And it was
0: Weird Al Yankovic. You can tell everyone it was
1: Weird yes. Al. Yes. <laughs> um, so Weird Al's uh, folks asked the security guys if they could do anything about it. And, well, the the security company guy knew me uh, from somewhere, And I can't remember where, but he knew me from somewhere and he called me up and he's like, look, I know, you know, a lot about the social media stuff. Is there anything you can do with this? And I said, well, I think so. But hold on and let me make a phone call and I'll get back to you. So I called Facebook and talked to my old friend, Sam, and said, Hey, Sam, can you, and I mean, these names are all made up to protect the innocent. Hey, can you, uh, can you do this? You know, can I send you some, some accounts that are are fake and, and you get rid of them? And he said, yes, you can send them and we'll get them taken care of. So I called him back and said, yes, I can do that. Well, that started a... It was basically a 40 hour a week manual process of me going in to all of the social media sites and typing in. Yeah, you know, Weird Al Yankovic and hitting. <laughs> just,
0: wait, just so everyone knows, we're actually not talking about Weird Al, yeah. but uh, <laughs> yeah. just something that came to my head. But so your software and I'm making the big air quotes thing. Your software in the beginning was you sitting behind the laptop.
1: Yes, it was me sitting behind the laptop and entering in the name and clicking next every 20 results. And I did that for two years. But how did you know which ones were fake and which ones are real? They told me which one their real account were. So oh, that gotcha. wasn't the real account. And believe me, after you've looked at Weird Al Yankovic, you know, 10 times a week for two years, you get to know everybody in the world that's named Weird Al Yankovic. And, you know, <laughs> you know who they are, what their pictures are. You know, you almost feel like you're part of their family.
0: No, I'm sorry but, that I mentioned his name and now he's the guy now.
1: <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it was... It got to the point where I was like, I'm spending 40, 60 hours a week doing this and I'm doing all right because I'm billing them an hourly rate. But I'm like, I could do this could be automated. It has to be able to be automated. So in in my non-software engineering mind, I sit down and said, let's automate this. Is this possible? And I think I might have even talk to you and a few other people and you're like, well, sure, it should be possible in theory. So,
0: well, you know, my response, yeah. anything is possible, given enough time and money. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yes. So at this point, I've made a little bit of money off of this, um, you know, doing this hourly thing. And and I decided, well, I'm going to reinvest it in and I'm going to try and find somebody that'll make this thing out. Well, at a neighborhood association meeting, I ran into one of my neighbors who owned a software company in town. And I so I called him up and I'm like, hey, this is what I want to do. Is this something you guys are interested in? Yeah, we'd love to do it. And he started to tell me, you know, this is what our hourly rate is. This is this. This is that. And I said, nope. <laughs> I said, I've, I've already gone through this hourly rate stuff with other companies and it doesn't work for me. And I said, I want you to give me a flat rate to build it. This is what I want. I'm going to spec it out for you. I'm even going to go so far as to draw the user interface. Which, as you know, that's usually the last thing that's developed in a software process. But I hired a different firm, actually a fraternity brother, I hired him to do the user interface on it. And then I want you to to make the back end work with this front end. But these are the features that I want to have and the things I need to access. So they gave me a proposal, gave me a a rate, and I said, fine. And he goes, well, we want 50% up front. I said, no problem. I gave him the 50% up front. The other 50% wasn't due until he was finished. He estimated it was going to take him 40 hours to do it. It took him more than 600 hours to get it done. But to his credit, he never charged me a dime more than the other half of what he said he was going to charge me. And when he was finished, I gladly paid him that other half. <laughs> and uh, ever since then, they've been very good about maintaining it. They bill me at an hourly rate to maintain it. And I don't mind paying them at this point, to be honest with you. Um, they I have... This has been the one investment that has paid itself out in spades for me. This one has been highly successful. I have made uh, probably 100,000 times what I put into it.
0: Oh, and it's got a beat sitting in front of the computer <clears throat> paging through search results.
1: Yes, it does. In a lot, I've taken what took me uh, you know, 60 hours plus a week to do just one client. And I now have several dozen clients and I probably don't work 60 hours in a month anymore on that project so so
0: how prevalent are fake accounts i mean we don't need to talk about names and stuff but like i mean all right so you said you got approached by you know people who represent hollywood elites it's not just actors and actresses that have fake accounts that pop
1: up, right? No, it's it's anybody that's in a high profile position whether it's a, an athlete a musician an actor or in a lot of cases you, a lot of people would be surprised but maybe not when you think about it evangelists uh, politicians, those are all people that get fake accounts quite frequently. Um, evangelists are a big part of my business. A lot of them have I take down hundreds of accounts a week for them and you might say well why is an evangelist have a a minister have a fake account well people create these fake accounts and then they send out direct messages to people and try and scam them out of money oh we're building an orphanage in guatemala can you send 500 bucks here or we're building a school in africa we need 200 dollars, can you send it here And a lot of innocent people are getting fooled by these accounts because they use the same profile photo, the same background photo, and they fill in the content that's very similar to what's on their real page. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially folks that are in your parents' and my parents' generations, you know, they're fairly, you know, they're starting to become uh, literate in Facebook and social media. They're falling for it. And they think that for some reason in their mind that one of these high profile Ministers is contacting them directly and wanting, you know, they they're asking for their help and they're, you know, they they feel uh, compelled to give it to them because this person has reached out to them individually. Right. And that
0: could be a really big deal person. And it's like they're starstruck and also honored and humbled. And sure, I'll send you fifty, hundred, five hundred dollars. Yep. And is that do you think the money grab is the most common like reason to that they make fake profiles or
1: for that, uh, for that group of people. Yes. Um, for other folks, you know, uh, the Justin Bieber's, the high profile entertainers, especially the male ones, the young, attractive male ones. I think that a lot of people do it. And then I know for a fact they go out and they ask for, um, young girls, teenage girls to send them, uh, nude photos, and oh,
0: predator accounts.
1: Yep. Damn. And so, in my mind, I don't have as many um, of those clients as I think I should have, because in my mind, those people are probably some of the most vulnerable out there, and they've got hundreds and thousands of these fake accounts under their names, and all it takes is one creep to send, send it out and meet with this girl and, and destroy her life by getting her to send pictures or even worse, meet up and do something to her physically.
0: Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Um,
1: You know, and it becomes, then it becomes, Oh, well it was a fake account under so-and-so's name. Well, why didn't that person be proactive and try and knock these accounts down? And for me, it would be negligence on the part of whoever's their management team is not to do it. But you know, I'm also trying to sell it. So I'm a little bit biased in that perspective, but
0: right. uh, But it seems like, if you take a look back at the things that you've done, you know, past your government days, when you started to bridge into like, you know, sports media and training stuff, all your ideas, even though, I mean, yes, they're going to generate money. They're pretty darn like pure in approach, you know, helping athletes not screw up their lives by stupid media gaffes, you know, uh, helping parents and coaches monitor their kids online, that kind of thing. And then helping people with these imposters, not because, not because there's, you know, a monetary gain to it, but because these imposter accounts can hurt the stars themselves or, you know, members of the community.
1: Yeah, it's, there's definitely, if you look at it in that, from that perspective, absolutely. Almost everything I've done has had a, um, a message of help and, and or a, a mission of helping others protect themselves or others in the in the process. And I don't know that that was overtly intentional, but it certainly could be uh, viewed that way.
0: Well, I think if your parents maybe took a deep breath and thought about the things you've done, they'd probably be pretty darn proud.
1: Well, you know me, I've never, I never believe that uh, my parents are ever satisfied with what I've done. So I, I you know, one person asked me one, I, I've done a lot of radio interviews and a lot of TV interviews over the years. And one of the questions, and you may be going to ask this later on, I don't know, but I'll beat you to the punch. The, the one question that they always ask me or they have asked me has been, you know, what motivates you? To do these things, to come up with these ideas, to to be this entrepreneur that's always looking for the next thing. And my response has always been the same thing. It's the fear of failure. And I don't feel like I'm successful yet. And I don't feel like I'm where I want to be yet. And I don't want to fail. I don't want to be a failure in my mom's eyes, my dad's eyes, or in my daughter's eyes or my wife's eyes or any of my friend's eyes. And that's what motivates me more than anything to continue to try and do things that no one else has done or take the road less traveled to get there because I think that I can do something different than other people have done in the past.
0: Well, it's interesting that you say that fear of failure thing, though. But I mean, don't you honestly believe that? you kind of have to i mean maybe fails not the right word in this instance but yeah i mean don't you think you have to fail a bunch of times before i mean i don't think i've ever quote unquote succeeded yeah i would say i'm i'm succeeding or on my way to succeeding but i mean i fail a lot <laughs> I try
1: not to fail.
0: (laughs) Well, I don't wake up every morning and say, yeah, today's going to be a good fail day,
1: but. Well, I, I think, you know, for me, my passion is to be viewed as a success at some point in my life by other people. And maybe that's the wrong motivation, but I don't want other people to look at me, whether I, I want people to look at me as successful, I don't want other people to look at me and say, man, that guy just royally fucked up. He shouldn't have done this stuff. He should have... I'm sorry for the X-rated language there. No worries. But he should... He should... It's a podcast, so we can say whatever we want, right? Exactly. Um So he should just have never have gone down that path. He should have continued doing something that was safe, where he had a regular salary, or he knew what he was going to make every month. He should have contributed to his 401k.
0: Oh, my God, Kevin, though. But if you look back at your life, I, I I've said that about you probably no fewer than a dozen times. But that's one of the things I love about you.
1: <laughs> well, it certainly has made for an interesting life. That's for sure. I've gotten to go places and do things that I should have never been able to do because I've been willing to take that risk or that gamble. Um But it was all done with the idea of I wanted to do what I wanted to do in the way that I wanted to do it. And, you know, that stubbornness or that immaturity, some might say, my parents, um, that. It drove me to do those things, but I always wanted to be successful or be the best at whatever I was doing. I've, as I've gotten older and more mature, I realized that uh, being the best at everything is not attainable is not an attainable goal, right. but, but avoiding failure, um, in a, in a larger sense with air quotes around it, failure is possible and, and I'm doing my best to do that.
0: Nice. Well, um, I. W- I don't want to end on that note because I did want to get your thoughts because we're going to go back to the social media stuff because it's been uh, picking at me since we got to that. So fast forward to future day or today, whatever. And. You know, we've talked about media training and, you know, kids with the permanence of social media. It's always going to be there. This next generation, the first generation wasn't managed. We have this generation now. And I don't know. You're probably familiar with this, too. These kids set up second or third accounts, which so they've got their primary accounts and then they've got like their Finsta account or like, you know, some other fake but it's still them and they're doing the things that they think is off the beaten path and they're safe, but they're not.
1: No, they're not, because all anyone has to do is take your your photo and throw it into a Google search and it'll pull those other pages up. Right. now, Maybe you, maybe they've got them private, you know, set the private. So in theory, you can't get into it. But somewhere, somehow, if you really want to get into a private page, somebody can get into it and well
0: but the problem is is you always let somebody in yeah it's not a single solid so some friend some air quote friend could be the one that outs your content on that that private page
1: screen grabs you know i hear it all the time from from my daughter and others now when i talk about this with them oh it's only on snapchat it disappears oh uh no it doesn't disappear they have to keep that material around in case they get a court order to provide it to someone right. You can pay to get your snaps back. I mean, there's, there's things out there that it's not quite what it seems on the surface. So a lack of full understanding of what they're doing on these, especially the newer networks that come out that don't have any sort of API for third party developers to access the content. um, You know, they're really, their their terms of service are very, um, you know, they're, they're, allegedly uh built around individual privacy and freedom of speech and all of that but in the end they're subject to the same rules and regulations as everybody else is and that content isn't going away just because you click delete it's on a server somewhere that could be found and brought back up or hacked by somebody from the outside world um, why they might want to hack your teenage kids account who knows but it might be there and it is there like you said they just sent
0: they just send yeah. them out i mean they're not looking for specific Data. They're just looking for data, and then when they analyze it, it might be of value.
1: And the the thing that's particularly troubling is not so. I mean, the comments are bad, and the content of the context of the comments is always relevant or should be taken into consideration when you're considering relevance. But. The photos are the things that scare me the most now having a teenage daughter and and, you know, what I see, hear them say in the backseat of the car when I'm driving in places. And, you know, I, I know the, the Finsta accounts exist and all of that, but that's the stuff that has me scared to death because I see what college kids have done for years now and I know she's a year or two away from that. And you know, now that she's playing sports on teams with girls that are older than her, she's kind of getting a a baptism earlier into that world than I would have that I'm comfortable with. Oh yeah. So it's uh it's a matter of of as a parent, yeah, I see the I see that coming and I see the dangers of it for the long term. But you think back to when you and I were kids and the stupid shit that we did And you think, how in the world can I sit around here and be a hypocrite and, you know, tell my daughter not to do this? Do as I say, not as I do, you know, it's
0: because not a damn
1: one of us had a cell phone. Yes, I, I say that all the time in my presentations when I do talk to athletes. Look, when I was a kid, if somebody had a camera, first of all, and they were. They took it to a party and took pictures of anything. You were always afraid to take it and get it developed because you figured that the person developing it would take it to the cops. Unless it was your girlfriend, Christy. Yeah,
0: unless it was your girlfriend who worked at the photo hut.
1: (laughs) Otherwise, you were scared to death that they would take those pictures and show them to the police. So you never got the film developed. So rarely did you have anything getting out. Right. But now when everybody's got at least one cell phone and there's always a camera rolling somewhere, you can't even cross the street without having somebody know what's going on so it's a it's i don't envy a kid in these days or even adults that want to do bad things in these days because it's going to be captured somewhere and kept for posterity and you just got to kind of live your life the best that you can and hope that nothing bad happens to you
0: or at least that nobody's rolling film when it does
1: yeah exactly exactly and it's the the finster accounts the the multiple accounts with you know slightly different spellings or even completely different spellings again all you got to do is throw a Throw a picture into Google and search it and all those accounts will pop up if they've used a a picture similar to that, because that's what Google's done. They've brought facial recognition software to the world. You can't hide anything anymore. It's not it's not you're not able to do it.
0: Uh, I bet you guys wish you had that when you started the due
1: diligence. We talked about it, actually, and we always wanted to. We I, we actually were in discussions with a company in Israel about partnering with them to do it. The problem was we never had enough uh, enough clients to justify the expense in bringing them on because it would have more than doubled our cost just to add that feature alone. And we were already having trouble getting enough clients as it was to make money at it. So, um but yeah, that was one of the first things we talked about was how can we do this? And then it was, well, can we get other people that are already doing it to partner with us? And the answer was no, we tried. It's, it's interesting, you know, it, you and I, neither one of us have a master's degree. And I've often thought about going back to business school or get an MBA over the years. And I think I've had, I, I actually have gone and taught at, at uh, Purdue um, uh, did a couple of guest lectures within a, an MBA course at Purdue at the Craner School of Management here. And I went through and I came out and I was like, you know what? I've got more real world experience than I would ever learn from anybody as a professor in two or three years, whatever it would take to get the master's degree.
0: Dude, your MBA's from the school hard knocks.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, I, one of my friends uh, who worked with me down in Columbia I actually got his MBA from uh, USC. He said it was the, a uh, $45,000 a year class on how to make the best PowerPoints you could possibly make. <laughs> and that he goes, all I learned in the MBA school was how to make a PowerPoint. And I paid $45,000 a year to do it. <laughs> Probably more than that now. But, uh, oh.
0: So what's next? What's the next big idea?
1: I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm getting a Winnebago in the uh, springtime to travel around and go to all my daughter's softball tournaments. Um, I think we ought to do a podcast on the way home from picking that up.
0: Ooh, that'll definitely uh, be a multi-parter.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what's next. I've, uh, one of the things that I, I, Always try and do is have something else out there in case what I'm doing now stops for whatever reason. And yeah, I feel like you're a couple of years behind your schedule here. You've
0: gotten kind of cushy with uh, social imposter. I
1: have, and I'm smart enough to know that, or I, I think I'm smart enough to know that it ain't going to last forever. But I haven't set down, I, I've had a few ideas floating through my head, but I haven't sat down and really focused on the next best thing yet. And uh, part of it is I'm wanting to enjoy my time with uh, my daughter playing softball and going and doing that. So I'm not really focused on it. And part of it is I just I have gotten lazy. Let's just call it lazy. I've gotten lazy and and enjoy my my work life balance that I have right now. Or maybe it's more appropriately called life work balance the way things are going. But uh, I'm. You know, I I definitely will come up with something else once this is is uh, slowing down. Hopefully it just doesn't stop on a dime and I'm left without. But uh, the plan is to keep riding this out for a while and and uh, eventually move on to the next thing.
0: Well, you've totally earned the downtime, so
1: I'm a lot less stressed than I used to be. That's for sure.
0: That's awesome. (laughs) So I end the podcast with, I guess, just one question. Um, So who out of the people that we know, or maybe it's just someone that you know, who do you think would be a good guest for this podcast?
1: that's a good question there's so many people and characters that we went to high school with and we have common friends from college and and uh whatnot but i think that there's a couple of people and i had dinner with one of these guys just uh, a few weeks ago and that's i think that interviewing mike king would be an interesting podcast for you
0: Ah, do you know what i was totally thinking
1: of him too that's great all right, um, I like that. I had dinner with him a couple of weeks ago. Uh, How is Michael? He's doing well. He's got a daughter who's a freshman in high school, um, and she's playing volleyball. And uh, he's still in the family business, so he's around town and, and still living in Muncie. So
0: well, he and I uh, support each other with our aging athletic endeavors. So that's definitely something that we can talk about.
1: Yeah I think he would be a, an interesting uh, an interesting person on there And then I also think um, that uh, probably someone uh, in the line of, of uh, Kelly Carmichael or Kelly Brown would be interesting because she's a teacher oh, yeah, and she's got uh, some, you know, a bevy of kids of her own who are very talented and she loves, uh, loves her job as a teacher. I think she would be an interesting interview as well. And those are that from, would be
0: great because not a teacher in my district so that would be much safer
1: yeah there you go I mean you got you got several teachers from our past that uh, that would be interesting uh, interesting subjects for this podcast you, know, you got Kathy Hiron's you got uh, Beth Hoke I mean you got our Patrick and uh, <laughs> whatever she's called now um, but uh, you know you got several that would be interesting uh, subject I think for that. Yeah, uh, you know, Doug Jones was a, is a teacher too, um, but you know, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of people from our way back machine that would be interesting.
0: Oh, I know that. I just wanted to see who you thought might be uh might be an interesting one to
1: add. Joe Reinard, heck, Joe Reinard. I
0: thought Joe too right away.
1: <laughs> you could interview him about being on the open road and riding his Harley. Would be definitely. He'd be good on that.
0: Alright, so now that we've done an hour and 10 minutes, uh, was, it, was it
1: anything what you thought it was going to be? Actually, it was. It was very, it was almost exactly what I thought it would be. And it's been a lot of fun. And I hope that we can do another one of these where we just focus on the pre, on the days when I, when I mowed yards for a living and, and played baseball and, and we were running around together at night and all that. That would be more fun. Well,
0: that's, that's definitely. So, you, so for everyone who's listening, Kevin will probably be a, a recurring guest uh, with quite frequency because we have a lot of, uh, a lot of minutes to recreate. But, uh, so, we could do the high school years. I totally want to do one about just all the the uh, Oka stuff. You know the the hearts and minds and we definitely have to cover how you ended up in Afghanistan to visit my brother when he was there. Uh, so there's so much that we have to cover. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I think, you know, another, we could do one whole one just on our, our, uh, freshman in college spring break trip to Vail. I mean, there's so much, so many funny tales and, and fun times that we've had over the years that, uh, it would make for a great conversation. And I, I don't know whether anybody would actually, Actually listen but at least you and i would have a good time talking about it
0: we will and people will also enjoy it i think uh i like the i like the approach to this because i do know a lot of really outstanding people you being definitely one of those and i like sharing sharing my people with everyone else
1: oh, can i have a gold star before we go i want to be a gold star
0: you totally just got a gold star all right <laughs> All right. So I think that's going to wrap us up until next time that I have Kevin on the show. Um, thanks for listening. Wow. So that was lots of fun with Kevin. Uh, as I mentioned in the podcast, he will probably be a recurring guest. And I uh, just want to say thanks to Kevin one more time. And also thanks to our podcast sponsor, Social Imposter. Check him out at socialimposter.com. And until next week, just remember, my friends are amazing.